This is our fifth week of going through different things about, just more practical things about witnessing to people. So the first week we talked about two things. The first thing was to make careful observations. The second thing was to ask good questions, share thought-provoking illustrations, or sort of test someone's commitment either to Christianity or to their false belief. So those were kind of the two groups of ideas from the first week. The second week, we talked about the idea of keeping the conversation going. Maybe ask one more question that you would normally feel comfortable with. And then also the idea of turning the conversation from just generally, here's, a, um, here's some facts, or here's some normal conversation topics, to here is the gospel. That's the goal that we're working toward. The third week, we talked about some different resources, and uh, just by way of reminder and also announcement, they are all on the upper right shelf. There's the two bookcases side by side there in the fellowship hall. They're all on that upper right shelf on the top, all those books on evangelism and several on missions. And um, the two books that I've got tonight that I'm going to refer to, I'm going to put them either on that shelf or the one right next to it, so they're going to be on the top shelf of those two bookcases. Um, we saw last week the idea that there are some key questions to potentially ask people who are coming from the backgrounds of Judaism, Islam, or Roman Catholicism. This week, what we're going to look at are two well-known cult groups that have a lot in common with other cult groups, and so they're kind of good test cases for cults. Uh, cults, if we were to define them, would essentially be something that's taken Christianity and corrupted certain aspects of it and then claimed to be genuine or the only genuine Christians. And that's essentially what has happened with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. We're also going to have a third category. Um, and that third category is, uh, I labeled it assorted pagan ideas. And uh, that's not an official term, but kind of sums it up well, I think. And we'll get to that because the reality is there are a bunch of religious ideas out there in the world. And a lot of people just sort of pick and choose. And uh, we'll talk about that uh, in the later part tonight. Let's start with Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, one quick reminder. Not everyone who claims a particular religious system believes everything that that religious system teaches. But this will give us some general ideas and maybe a starting point for conversation. Key differences between the Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, biblical Christianity. Their source of authority. They would say that the Bible is inspired, but only the watchtower can interpret it. The Bible plus the leadership, right? Which in the end means just the leadership instead of the Bible alone and individual Christians by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, understanding what God has said. Uh, the reason that this is important is, for one, it's very similar to the Roman Catholic approach, except instead of Pope and church fathers and tradition and all of that, it is a similar set of different traditions and authority figures who are not God, not the apostles, not the Bible, that eventually supersede what the Bible has said. There are those who in the context of the Jehovah's Witnesses, would basically say, well, yeah, you can do a Bible study, but if you do the Bible study without these publications from the Watchtower Society, you're stumbling around in the dark. And their take on it was something along the lines of, if you study your Bible for more than two years without the official teachings in hand, you're going to fall into darkness. In other words, you might actually trust what the Bible says instead of what the teachings say. And so much like Roman Catholicism, or Islam or other places, there is an emphasis on here are the official teachings, don't question them, just follow them. Their view of God. They, as you might guess from the name, say only Jehovah instead of the Trinitarian God that we would know and understand from the Bible. So, for example, they see Jesus as first the Archangel Michael, then, as a physical man, Jesus of Nazareth, and then his physical body is destroyed, and in some sense he is reshaped to like Michael 2.0. He 
He's recreated. Instead of the biblical concept that Jesus is God who takes and adds to himself humanity and continues, not having lost anything, not having been destroyed and remade, but having had uh, humanity added to him, not, um, not that he becomes a man and then goes back to being kind of an angelic figure. They would also say that the Holy Spirit is force or energy, not personal. Instead, the biblical concept that the Holy Spirit is a person. And I don't have all the passages in front of me at the moment, but there's a bunch of verses where the Holy Spirit is referred to with a masculine pronoun or seen as distinct from God and all of those sorts of things. And those would be some things that you could potentially look at in support of the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Bruce. In that list of people, yes. No, so they don't believe Jesus is God. They would say Jesus is a creative being. Paul. Yes. Uh, yeah, so under the, the Bible, the idea of source of authority, they have their New World Translation. And um, let me uh, give you an example of, let's see here, give you an example of how they misquote things John 1 is yeah John 1 is one I think that we're familiar with so they would say um, in the New World Translation John 1 they say let's see here I'm trying to find the I have it in the other room there, but the, they're out of order in this. So let me just give you an example here. Um, they, they take, for example, this would be a misuse of Bible, not so much the translation issue, which is an important one. Um, they say you should not get a blood transfusion. So how do they support that doctrine? Because Genesis 9.4 and Leviticus 17 talk about not eating blood. Now, to be fair, in context, those are talking about animal blood, not human blood. And there's a difference between eating something and having it ejected into your arm. Because you don't have any blood yourself. Because you've lost it all. Um, they, also, um, they also would... Um, Anyways, that's just one example of a misuse of Scripture. In terms of the way they translate things in the New World, New World Translation, uh, for example, they would say, instead of where it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19, and 2 Corinthians 13, 14, they retranslate it, the undeserved kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the sharing in the Holy Spirit be with all of you. Um, they translate 1 Corinthians 8, 6 as there is actually to us one God, the Father. Um, and there's a lot of other examples. And so without, so I was, I was telling Sarah when I was reviewing this section, the section on the Jehovah's Witnesses is... 80 pages, so I'm not going to go through this because we'd be here for several days. But if you want to look at this book, I should probably mention this book. This book has a fairly exhaustive treatment of a lot of the cults and modern religions. It's called Encyclopedia of Cults and New Religions. Um, and so this one covers Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, Mind Sciences, Baha'is in, Unitarianism, and a few other ones in short summary form. Uh, this book that I referred to last week, The Illustrated Guide to World Religions, also covers secularism, the New Age, and other world faiths, which is kind of what we're going to get to in the last section tonight. And so those are two good resources. I'll have them on the shelf. If you want to borrow them, read them, bring them back, and uh, other people can make use of them if you want a kind of a summary of some of these beliefs. One thing that I missed when I was reading through this at first is that at the beginning of each section, they have a summary, like info at a glance, and a doctrinal summary. And that's very helpful, just running down through some of the beliefs. 
because I missed that page and then I was reading through the rest of the 80 pages and trying to summarize and then I came to that one when I was looking at Mormonism I said wow that would have saved me a lot of time so a couple of resources there for reference uh, salvation their view of salvation is that there are three maybe four groups of people depending on how you break it down you have the 144,000 who are the elect and that's based on a corrupt understanding a misunderstanding of revelation in which they claim it for themselves instead of it being tied to the Jewish people uh, then you have the earthly class of Jehovah's Witnesses and then you have the rest of mankind the rest of mankind is technically two groups there's the rest of mankind some of which will be resurrected in the millennial kingdom according to their view and then there's the rest of mankind who are um, condemned by God and the unsaved, which ties into this, the unsaved are annihilated. They don't believe in hell. They believe you cease to exist. The unsaved, yes. In, in their understanding of things. So here is their understanding of salvation for the 144,000. They will become spirit creatures. In other words, Jesus, Michael, becomes Jesus, and then Jesus ceases to be a man and becomes Michael again. He's now a spirit creature who lives forever in God's favor because he passes the test, something along those lines. The goal of the 144,000, the expectation is we too will exist almost as angelic beings in a heavenly place with Jehovah God. Then the rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the, so the so-called other sheep, their goal in this life is to do good enough in following after Jehovah God that they are in charge of everybody else during the millennial kingdom. If they mess up during the Millennial Kingdom, they too have the opportunity to be annihilated. The rest of mankind is resurrected to the earth as good or evil and must do works during the Millennium, leading to a potential opportunity of eternal life on earth, otherwise they are annihilated. So essentially there is no confidence of salvation and man gets credit for his own salvation. There is, and what is salvation? Salvation is trust in and obedience to the teachings and practices of the Watchtower Society. And they call these gospel works. In other words, they would say, in the Old Testament, you can't be saved by keeping the law, but you are saved by following the gospel works of the New Testament. So it becomes a distinction without a difference to say, well, you can't keep the law, but you keep a different law, and then God lets you into paradise of whatever that looks like. They make arbitrary distinctions about willful sinners that say, all right, they would make, and there, to be fair, there are other Christian groups that do this, and I wonder if this is where they got it from potentially. Uh, the perfectionist strain of Christianity says you can get to a point like Wesley and some of his followers, you can get to a point where you no longer intentionally sin. The difference is, I think Wesley recognized all of us are born sinners. He just uh, overemphasized man's ability to get out of that condition. Whereas the Jehovah's Witnesses would say more along the lines that people are basically good. They would also say the soul is material and mortal and therefore can be sort of destroyed. And that kind of ties into the doctrine of annihilation. Bob. Yeah, right on that. And we made this up so we can control you, I guess. Second chapter. What's that? I'm sorry? That other book in the Bible, we made this up so that we can control you, I guess. I think that's where I read off. Yeah, pretty much. Control, what's the last thing that you said? Just add a, we had, forget it. No, no, say it. We made this up so that we can control you, I guess. You know, just adding a kiss. Okay, I gotcha. Sorry. No, you're fine. I was like, I was, I was concerned for a second that you were either having a moment or, you know, started a new spiritual practice in the middle of the church. Yeah. We won't go there. It's a different week. All right. Possible approaches. Um, I think it's important to... There's a lot of other things that we could talk about in terms of their religious beliefs. Um, there's a kind of a weak view of sin. They would have a generally orthodox idea of Satan. This is important. The second coming supposedly happened in 1874. And then actually we meant 19 actually we meant 1914 was the later revision. 
So if the second coming has already taken place, what does that mean it was? It means it was an invisible, non-tangible, non-observable event that we've all missed. Which raises the interesting question of why anybody right now wants to still be a Jehovah's Witness. Because you've already missed the boat. Like the, the quota for the 144,000 in their idea is pretty much filled up. And so this was something that was important when I was reading through the chapter. If the 144,000 is filled up and the best you can hope for is eternal life on earth, that lack, but not with God, but just on earth, that I think there's a degree of why are you pursuing this then, right? And I think they would probably make the argument that eternal life on earth is still better than ceasing to exist, which is true if that were the case. But it's still not the hope of eternity that the Bible describes, right? Um, because their allegiance to the Watchtower, Watchtower Society is central to their misunderstanding of all these other things, at some point there probably needs to be a conversation about the authority of Scripture and some of the issues with the Watchtower Society. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. Go ahead. I don't think so. I think they see it as still future. Um, yeah, again, the, the point of this is not that it necessarily is 100% coherent and makes sense. So here, here we go. The second coming of Jesus has already incurred invisibly. Since the 1914 return of Jesus, he is now more important. He obtained his kingdom in 1914 and infused with a royal capacity. And they would deny um, even his very existence, but they would still say, we believe in the biblical Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now, the question would be, how does this fit? Like, when does all this happen? It's just sort of this vague idea that there's an eternal future. Um, and again, it's, it's how does this all fit? It's at some future point. Like, we think all the things in Revelation are going to happen, but some of them have already happened, and there's just a lot of vagueness and confusion, I think, would probably be the short answer. Are you going to ask some Bruce? Well, this is maybe a little humorous, but maybe a lot of them are already gone because I don't have any knocking on my door anymore. So maybe they think they're gone. I don't know. It yeah. Like, it used to be a period of time throughout the whole year they'd be knocking on your door. So. Yeah, it's hard to know if that's the effects of COVID, it's hard to know if that's uh, a decline in their membership. I think there have been, in all of these large groups, there has been a decline in allegiance due to, you know, there's a fair bit of corruption that occurs in the higher levels of leadership and all those sorts of things. And at some point, people get tired of it. And here's the interesting thing. This is completely unrelated to this, but a really important point from history. Why did the Reformation happen when it did? The re obviously because it was God's plan is the short answer, right? The longer answer from a historical perspective is you have technological advancement that enabled the rapid spread of information, the printing press. You had a bunch of people who were tired of the popes fighting with each other and condemning every other, everybody else who followed a different pope. You had people who were tired of the entanglement of like the Borgias and other wicked secular people with the church. You had a general sacrilege among the priesthood. You know, Luther's idea of up, let us send Jesus back to his father again after they're, you know, doing the mass, the Eucharist, supposedly sacrificing him. Um, the idea of buying your loved ones out of hell if you just pay a little bit of a tax to build the cathedral. All of these things of corruption and, and all of these sorts of things, that moment was a huge opportunity for the gospel. So to the extent people realize that the leadership of an organization they've had allegiance to for a long time has all of these problems, that's a prime opportunity for the gospel. Uh, and so we should... It's easy to say, here's these people coming to my door at an inconvenient time, I don't want to talk to them. I would encourage you to take the opportunity to talk to them as much as possible. Obviously, sometimes it's not possible. So, Some questions. These are some that... I don't know that any of these are the best questions, but there, there were some in the book that I thought were helpful. Does the Watchtower Society uphold honesty and integrity in translating the Bible, God's Word? 
This is a little bit more of a technical one, so if you're not real familiar with what the New World Translation says and what the Bible says in one of the other um, modern translations like NASB, NIV, something like that, this one may be harder to have a conversation about, but to the extent that the misuse of Scripture is a big issue in this group, at some point it should probably be part of the conversation. Is, this one's, I think, more accessible, although you do need to have a little bit of historical knowledge. Is the Watchtower Society trustworthy and accurate in, in its prophetic statements? Here's where there's an interesting intersection between our history and theirs. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a huge renewal in interest in prophecy. And a lot of people were very much involved in saying, Jesus is coming back on this day, right? So I mentioned to you that they would say that it already took place, and their dates were, um, let's see here, 1914 was the second one. And then the first one was, let's see here, 1874. So that's a long time ago. But from right after the Civil War until the early 1900s, there were a bunch of people giving dates. 1898 was a big date, if I remember correctly. 1899, 1901, right? So sort of like Y2K, but Jesus is coming back instead of go hide in your basement, right? Um, there was a lot of that going on. So they absorbed that stream of overzealous, interest in prophecy that was true at the time. So the Jehovah's Witnesses originally started out by one guy writing a long commentary in the book of Revelation, having a few other weird ideas and getting a bunch of people to follow and hang out with them. That's where it started. And then with each successive person in charge, other things have been added in. So to the extent that there are questions about the prophetic accuracy, I mean, point them to a passage like Deuteronomy, and I haven't looked at it in the New World Translation, but if a prophet lies and the prophecy isn't true, what did the Old Testament say? He was to be put to death. Don't listen to his words. He's false. And that is a discussion worth having. Has the Watchtower Society changed its own divine revelations? There's a section in this book that I would encourage you to look at if you have the time, where it shows the evolution of their thought. First they said this, then they said this. First they said this, now they said this. First they said this, First they said this now they said this. They have not been consistent in what they have taught over the years. There is a fair criticism that that happens in some segments of Christianity as well, professing Christianity. The response, I think, would be, we have not changed what we believe based on the words of various people. We've said, all right, here's what the Bible says. Here's how this passage, passage lines up with this passage. That's why I now believe something different than I did before. Not because some person out here changed the official statement on it. Uh, is the Watchtower Society fair in quoting other sources and authors in support of its views? In other words, do they quote other people accuracy? And the very short answer is no. They'll quote from all sorts of other people who actively are saying they're lying in support of their own views. That's poor scholarship aside from being a terrible thing to do, right, as a person. Here's what I would suggest in terms of personal conversations. Asking questions about specific verses, such as the ones that teach that Jesus is Lord, is helpful. Uh, there was a Jehovah's Witness that I had conversations with extensively when I was working uh, during college. And I asked him, so what about these spots where Jesus receives worship? Because they've corrupted John 1.1 and retranslated it, so that one's harder to argue about. But... There's a bunch of places where Jesus receives worship. So if the angel of the Lord or Jesus receives worship, he has to be God. And that doesn't fit into their framework. That didn't necessarily persuade him, but I could tell that it was thought-provoking for him. Uh, we could discuss the confidence in real versus potential salvation. For a Jehovah's Witness, you can never really know Am I going to make it out of this life alive, or am I going to be zapped into non-existence? That's no way to live, right? Um, so that's another line of questions to potentially consider. Any thoughts real quick before we move on to the next one? I know I took a little longer on that than I had planned. Uh, Mike. Uh, just, <clears throat> I ended up with a young man many years ago. We didn't talk with him too much, but he could... One of the things was that he was in the religion so much because he was raised from a young child. 
And that's how he said a lot of the people were, because he had a girlfriend that wasn't, and supposedly she was trying to be it. But what they were both trying to accomplish was they had to do certain things to get to a certain height just to be a part of the Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. And then on top of it, he had said it quoted about 144,000. And he said even now, a lot of them had failed and fallen away. So there's actually more room for the 144,000. And I said, that doesn't sound too good. Yeah. But yeah, he was quite confused. And, and then he leaned this way, and then he leaned this way, and henceforth, he died, he's in hell today. Yeah. There was no way I could reach him. I tried. Good point on that. They're, one of their really big things, ways of connecting people, is through Bible studies, which is something that we in churches like ours have not been very good at doing Bible studies with people over the years. And so I would encourage you, don't just pass out tracts, but build relationships with people so you can actually show them the truth of the gospel. Because that's how we see a lot of these things. Well, Paul would go into a place, he'd say, here's what the Bible says, and he'd witness to Jews until the Jews kicked him out of the synagogue. Then like we saw in Acts 17, he'd go and he'd talk to people in other places and say, here's Jesus from what has been written so far, and, and point them to Jesus that way. A lot of time, a lot of, since Charles Finney, the so-called evangelical or Christian church has largely been geared toward Things like tent meetings, walking the aisle, emotional stirring of people, and a lot less of actually sharing people, sharing the gospel with people through studying the Bible together. So I would encourage you to do that. Uh, Jim, you had your question. Your hand up, sorry. Well, I did have a Jehovah's Witness knocking on my door just about a week ago. Okay. For the first time in years. Yeah. And I didn't know he disguised his speech pretty well. He sounded pretty good for a little while. And then I said, well, I'm a born-again Christian. And that shut him right off. Okay. He was all done. Okay. Interesting. So they are still out there. Okay. All right. Anything else real quick? All right. Let's move on to Mormonism. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses is kind of a, a cult by way of misunderstanding prophecy and following one guy's teaching. Mormonism is actually recycled pagan ideas. And we'll talk about that. They say, for example, that God is an exalted physical man resulting from the sexual intercourse of a divine father and mother. And infinite gods exist. That's Greek and Roman and Norse mythology recycled for the modern person. Jesus is then the offspring of God, who is this exalted physical man trending toward being more powerful, and Mary, a wife of this God. Notice they say a wife, not the wife. Essentially, if we were to sum up what they believe, instead of monotheism, which Jehovah's Witnesses have in common with Islam and Judaism, they would be described, Mormonism, as henotheism. We have a pantheon of gods and one is the highest. Again, that's Greek and Roman and Norse mythology recycled. You have Zeus, you have... Uh, what was he called for the Romans? I don't remember. Odin for the Norse gods, right? You have one god who's really powerful over all the other ones. Their idea of the Holy Ghost is that he is a man with a spiritual body. Don't ask me to explain how that works because that doesn't make any sense. Even Jesus after the resurrection still has a physical body. Uh, so this idea of a spiritual body... It's backwards, right? Salvation for them is personal merit and effort with the goal of attaining godhood in the highest part of the celestial kingdom. So they have three ideas, that there is the celestial heaven, then the terrestrial heaven, then the telestial heaven. And you move kind of up through the levels. If you can reach the celestial heaven, then your main goal is to increase or have spirit children. Much like their concept of God, who's begotten by divine beings, you have spirit children. So, I'm in no way recommending this movie. But, 
Guardians of the Galaxy 2, there's a godlike figure who goes and has babies with a bunch of women on a bunch of different planets and then tries to establish copies of himself in other places. That's essentially Mormonism. Be like the god who is a planet who makes a bunch of copies of himself elsewhere and repopulates other parts of the universe. And you become a more powerful god the more offspring that you have. Again, it's an intersection of polygamy and sexual license alongside polytheism uh, with one god as the highest. They would say there's no original sin and man is basically good. They would say that death doesn't prevent salvation. Uh, they don't believe in hell, almost more of a purgatory, and then kind of a working your way back up through the ranks. There are some who say maybe there's a handful of people who are so bad that they deserve eternal death, but pretty much everybody, it's a very universalistic kind of thing. It's not that you don't get into heaven, it's that you don't get into the highest heaven. So you're like a very minor god, right? Like the god of worms and frogs instead of the god of the sky, right? They would say that man can evolve to godhood from a pre-existent spirit state. Well, that is an idea that they ripped off from like Hinduism and Buddhism, the idea of reincarnation, right? They would say that good works cancel out sin, and the fall is actually a good thing because it helped people learn maturity, which is a twisting of the biblical truth that God has used the consequences of the fall to reveal more about himself and accomplish his purpose in the world, but that doesn't mean man's sinning and all the heartache that's followed is in and of itself a good thing, despite the fact that God turned it to good. It's kind of like having your brothers throw you in a pit and plot to kill you is not a good thing, but did God use that in the life of Joseph? Yes. Does that make it okay for his brothers to do that? Absolutely not. Was it good that Jesus died for the sins of the world? Yes. Were the people who murdered him and plotted against him and broke the law in doing so off the hook because it accomplished God's plan? No, they were still responsible for their evil individual moral choices. They would say that Satan is a spirit brother of Jesus and of all people. But he got punished along with several angels and they were not ever allowed to be, have human bodies and therefore not allowed to reproduce. And so they were punished by being forced to stay angels. Which is probably based, I haven't researched this thoroughly, probably based on a misunderstanding of Genesis 6 and some things from Book of Enoch and wherever else. The second coming is either, and there's some dispute among the ranks of which this is, is either of the earth god, Jesus, or the god, Joseph Smith. One of the two is coming back, but beyond that, it's uh, a little fuzzy. The Bible is God's word if it's translated correctly. And as I recall, the Mormons also have their own revisions of the Bible, which they push on people. And the Book of Mormon. We'll talk about that in a second. If you, have, if you are interested in looking at either the New World Translation or the What Does the Bible Teach from the Mormons, I have a copy of each of them. If you borrow them, bring them back because I'm not sure that they would give them to me again if I told them who I was and what I do. But um, I do have a copy of those on the shelf. They're hidden behind some other books because I don't want people taking them home and reading them thinking they were good. Uh, not that most of you would or any of you, but... You know, just in, just in case. Some possible approaches. I think one, and this isn't one that the book necessarily recommended, but one to consider is the idea of discussing the parallels between the biblical description of false teachers and the actual realities of the Mormon church. The Mormon church is one of, if not the richest, religious organization in the United States. It's probably a toss-up at certain points between them and the Catholic church. They own Brigham Young University. They own a whole bunch of the power grid out in Utah. They, they have vast reserve. They own life insurance companies. They have a lot of interests in uh, genealogy and own a bunch of those companies. They are well off in terms of money. Biblical characteristics of false teachers. Greedy and grasping for wealth. Deceitful and taking advantage of people. And aggressive in seeking followers. There's a parallel to be brought out there at some point in your conversations. Eventually, there needs to be some discussion of the origins of the Book of Mormon. So, for example, 
the people who were there when Joseph Smith was supposedly receiving the book from the whole golden plates thing, he was actually using a crystal ball, gazing at the crystal ball, communing with the demon with his head inside a bag, looking at the crystal ball, and then saying to these people, write these things down. You could talk about the fact of the clear plagiarism from historical and contemporary sources and the contrast or irrelevance of it versus the Doctrine and Covenants work that came later. Here's essentially what seems to have happened historically. Joseph Smith was kind of a pervert and uh, like a, almost a Satanist. People realized that wasn't going to be a sustainable business model so they came out with the Doctrine and Covenants and said, all right, here's how we're going to organize ourselves, right? It's kind of like we went from one guy who's the weird guy off in the corner who starts the company to let's have some bylaws and get organized, right? That's essentially what happened. Some questions. Why are there changes in Mormon doctrine? There's a couple of pages in this book that go over some of those significant changes. Kind of related from personal experience talking to Mormons how do you know which revelations are true? One really big one that they don't want to talk about is they didn't have any money. And so Joseph Smith supposedly have a re had a revelation to go sell in Canada the copyright of his book and make some money. So he sends some people to go sell the book and they come back and they didn't do it. I don't forget if they got lost or didn't know how to make it happen or whatever. And so... He asks the spirits again, supposedly the spirit of God, but probably a demon, why didn't this happen? What, 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 how do we understand it? Well, there are revelations that are from God, there are revelations that are from Satan, there are revelations that are from people. How do you know which is which? That's a really important question, right? The Bible says to test the spirits, how do we know if something is true or false? We compare it to what we have in Scripture. There is a consistency in what the Bible teaches. There's a consistency in what the apostles taught. Uh, so how do you know what's true and what's error? You compare it to what was received, what was passed down, what was recorded. In their case, if you just get ongoing continuous revelation, and this is one of the things that we were talking about, this Mormon guy and I, if you have ongoing continuous revelation, how do you know if it's true? Another question uh, to ask, not just um, changes in Mormon doctrine, how do you know which revelations are true? Ask them, am I condemned apart from the Mormon church? Because that's a really important question. If that is the only way, and I'm going to be condemned apart from it, then that's something we can have a conversation about. What does the Bible say about who's condemned? What does the Bible say about who is in God's presence someday? This is not a profound question, but why Missouri? Missouri. Why Missouri? Like, so there's, uh, we associate Mormonism with Utah, but it started out at Missouri. And he basically said that's where God is establishing his kingdom. It seems strange for God, who um, did a whole bunch of stuff over in Israel, to suddenly say, my kingdom's going to be in Missouri. And, you know, we can argue that point, but, but if you say, which is more likely, that the God who did a whole bunch of things in the Middle East suddenly was like, forget all that, I'm starting over in the United States, or that you said Missouri because that's where you grew up and you like that spot, which is more likely? Occam's razor is not a fail-safe rule, but it's basically the idea that the simplest explanation is more likely to be correct. It's not 100% of the case, 100% of the time, but... Quite often, the simpler explanation is not this. Now, the problem with Occam's razor is it discounts the possibility of the supernatural, which sometimes, you know, rewrites the entire equation, often. But in this instance, what's more likely? This kid grew up in Missouri, really liked that spot, thought he was really special, said, started playing around with spiritism, thought God gave him a message. That has happened over and over and over again in church history, right? Christian science... All of the cults have been basically one guy said, God gave me a special message that none of the rest of you had, so I'm going to tell it to you, and now you should all follow me and make me rich and give me pleasure and all of those sorts of things. That's pretty much what a cult is. Like, 
Yeah, Mennonites, not Mormon. Yeah. There is an interesting connection between uh, Mormonism and Hawaii. They own large swaths of Hawaii, so they've set up historical exhibits in which they try to indoctrinate people. It's a whole other weird thing that I was reminded of when I was reading this book. Um, here's a really important question that I didn't see in the book, but is something that occurs to me. If you can have a good conversation with someone along these lines, is it possible that Satan has corrupted a good desire for bearing children into a desire to be God? You say that might be a really weird question. Here, here's where I'm coming from. The people that I've encountered from Mormon, who are Mormons value family. They see children as a gift of God, all of those sorts of things. And that in and of itself is a good thing. Children are a gift of God and God wants us to grow up, get married, have families, all those sorts of things. Satan, I think, has twisted that good desire for a lot of people to say, and that's my path to becoming God. Take them back to Genesis. What were Adam and Eve tempted by? You can be like God. What are we constantly tempted by that Satan's constantly trying to do? Say, you can be like God if, and your fill-in-the-blank is family and having kids, Someone else's fill-in-the-blank is money and power. Someone else's fill-in-the-blank is whatever, right? Different paths, same problem. You can be God if blank. Another way, if you, if you want to be even more blunt, to the extent that you present Mormonism as being a wholesome religion, how do you explain the sexualized and polytheistic background of your beliefs as pure religion instead of recycling of a pagan idea. Look at Greek mythology, look at Roman mythology, look at Norse mythology, look at the teachings of Mormonism. In all four of those, you have gods coming down and having babies with random human women. You have people trying to gain power as gods by getting more followers. You have all sorts of strange family dynamics. Mormonism is recycled pagan mythology, is the short version. Depending on how well you know the person, that might not be the first question to lead with, but it's something you've got to talk to about them about along the way. Any thoughts on that real quick before we go to the last section? Bob? Right. Especially if it's a lie that we like the sound of, right? You can be a god if you have a family. And that's a pretty low bar of entry, right? Right. I mean, that's true of a lot of these false religions. They tell you to do things you already want to do, whereas true Christianity tells you to do things you don't want to do. True Christianity says, share your ice cream with your brother or sister. It's that book that Bob was quoting earlier. What's your, what's your beliefs in, in marriage? I didn't review all of the ins and outs. It's very geared toward men having multiple wives. They have an idea of eternal marriage, um, which kind of like Islam for women who are like, who think that it's somehow romantic, it's a bad deal for women in the religion, is probably the short version. There's been a lot of TV documentaries on this. To be honest, if you want to be um, mistreated and have all your rights taken away as a woman, go join a cult. Because pretty much every cult is a guy who wants to be with multiple women and get rich. I mean, whatever name you want to give it, it's a, it's a corruption of someone who's teaching people, Jesus says, is supposed to be a servant, is supposed to be following after God's holiness, 
is supposed to be practicing discipline, is not supposed to be greedy. And every cult leader throughout history has been the opposite of all of the biblical commands for leadership. All right, last section, assorted pagan ideas. Here's where I think a lot of people you encounter are going to fall. They wouldn't say, I'm Roman Catholic, or I'm Muslim, or I'm of Jewish background, or I'm a Mormon, or Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the really long name they give themselves, or I'm a Jehovah's Witness. They would say, you know what? I just want to get through life. And here are a few of my beliefs. Yeah, I'm spiritual, right? So here are some of the streams of religion that flow into the average person's ideas about our world. Secularism or humanism, New Age philosophies, the spiritual idea, psychiatric models, here's all the problems I have and how I've found solutions for them, tired arguments against supposed Christian beliefs. Here are some key differences of your average person's beliefs versus the Bible. And this is based on reading various sources on New Testament paganism. What do people believe in Paul's day versus just lots of conversations I've had with people today. Origins. Where do we come from? By accident. Something like evolution, something like just popping into existence instead of being an intentional creation of the one true God. Authority. I decide truth. And if you're not sure if that's the main religion of people today... Look at all the discussions people are having about morality in our culture. I decide truth. I get to decide what gender I am. I get to decide what race I am. I get to decide what species I am. There was a guy in Japan, I think, spent $12,000 on a costume so he could pretend to be a Kali every weekend. And we think that that is strange, but the reality is it's the logical conclusion. If I can define myself and truth is what I say it is, why not be that? Why not believe you're a rock? Why not believe you're a tree? Why not believe you're whatever, right? Uh, No response to that. Let me keep going. <laughs> what is the Bible's view of authority? God gets to say what's true, and we, that's, that's what we're following. What's the idea of God? There's variations on this, right? You have various shades of polytheism. There's lots of gods. Or monism, which is the universe is God. In other words, there's no distinction between God and the universe. They are the same thing. Or they would say, and this is one where it gets tricky because they don't actually believe it deep down, but they want to pretend that they do. They'd say, there's no God. But really what that means is I've decided I want to be God, so if there's any other God, I might not beat him out, so I'm going to pretend like there's no God, right? There are no true atheists, right? There are only agnostics who are willingly agnostic, right? Um, The Bible says there is one true triune God. Not many gods, not a single god, one person, one god, not the universe's god, not no god, but one true god, Father, Son, and Spirit. Power or the occult, typically viewed as positive or helpful. It takes different forms. There's astrology, there's interest in UFOs. I'm not saying every person who's curious about what UFOs are is deliberately following a pagan religion. All I'm saying is there's there's a fascinating connection between people observing unexplained phenomena and a lot of the spiritualistic New Age kind of ideas that say this angelic, alien, whatever kind of being gave me a message. Or like, well, that's just happened today. Ironically, Paul talks about it in the New Testament. He says if there are those, or actually Jude, I think, too, if there are those who worship or revile angelic majesties, there was interest in these sorts of things. They just, they didn't call it UFOs, right? They understood there to be angels. There were powers and so forth. Ephesians 6 talks about this. 
The Christian understanding of those things is that association with occult power is dangerous, demonic, or forbidden, or and forbidden. So, quick example of this would be Acts 19, I think it is. There are seven sons of a Jewish priest who go in and say, we're going to cast out a demon by the power of Paul's Jesus. The demon's like, I don't know who you guys are. He beats them up, throws them out the street. It's not something to mess around with, and it is dangerous, and it ought not be pursued. Salvation for people in society today. Salvation is defined in different ways. For some, it's godhood. You can be a god. For some, it's happiness. Life will be the way that I want it to be. Along those lines, I will be healthy, I will have success. So let me give you an example. Uh, Mormonism, Hinduism, Christian science, Scientology. Right? Mormonism says you can be a god. Uh, Hinduism says you can achieve happiness or nirvana. Christian science says you can achieve health. Also like the health and wealth gospel folks. Uh, Scientology says you can achieve success or maybe more because you have achieved success you can pay us lots of money and then you'll keep being successful how do you get this salvation? by self-belief have you ever heard on TV, book, movie trust yourself, trust your heart believe in yourself and you'll here's the stupidity of that I can believe in myself from now until I die and I will never play in the NBA because the power of belief is not the thing that's going to fix that problem. Well, yeah. I suppose if I did the surgery and got my legs lengthened, then it would... It's a whole other thing. Um, sometimes they would say it's accomplished by hard work, right? So meditation in a, in a Hindu or Buddhist kind of way is hard work, right? Sometimes it's accomplished through minimalism. If you just get rid of all these things in your life, you'll be happy. And people turn that into a religion, right? Or the opposite of minimalism, accumulation of material wealth, right? And then you'll be happy. Um, sometimes it takes the turn of restoration of nature. The problem is industrialism and capitalism, all those sorts of things. If we just went back to living in the woods and eating things we found on the ground, everything would be better. And the reality is there's some aspects of all of these things that... Are, have a, 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 some association with Christianity. Are we supposed to put forth effort? Yes. Are we supposed to work hard? Yes. Should we find happiness in lots of stuff? No. Is there a degree that the further we move away from the way that God made the world into a world we've tried to invent with technology and industrialization that there are a lot of problems associated with it? Yes. But none of those things are accomplishing salvation. And that's the difference of it. Or for the, the Hindu person or the New Age person, dissolving self, becoming part of the unified whole. That's kind of the goal. And the bottom line, salvation is according to the path I choose. I have my path, you have your path. You can't tell me what my path should be. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Quick rundown of some different aspects of their theology. Sin that some would say it's not real. There is no such thing as sin. There is no such thing as evil. I'm tempted to say the solution to that is to punch somebody in the face and then say, was that real? No, it's not real, so what are you going to do about it? But that's not a good witnessing tactic. My point is to say, it show, it's something like that illustrates the foolishness of saying evil and suffering is not real. It's very real, and it's very present, and it needs a solution. A really popular one is to say that sin, suffering, problems are due to ignorance, Right? Um, if that is the case, then what's the solution? Teach people more stuff. Here's the problem. If you teach a murderer more stuff, he's a better murderer. He's not a person who cares about the lives of other people. And that's been proven out time and again. Um, sin is, I blame other people for my problems, right? The whole victim mentality. The biblical view of sin, I am responsible for what I have done, but Jesus takes care of it in my place. Heaven. What's their concept of heaven? Um, there's a song that's kind of dumb that has a line in it, heaven is a place on earth. That sums up pagan religion. Heaven is something we accomplish on earth. 
through physical pleasure, through wealth, through building a name for ourselves, whatever. These are not new ideas. These are things that have been recycled since the dawn of time. Why were they building the Tower of Babel? To make a name for themselves. Why did the people worship Baal? Because Baal said, you can do whatever you want, have lots of kids, and have your crops come in on time. None of this is new, right? What is the goal for the believer? Eternal life in God's presence on a remade and restored earth. Kingdom. What's their idea of a kingdom? A one world order with utopian or dystopian themes, depending on the person, often accomplished by technology or education or meditation or whatever else, depending on which stream of paganism you're drawing from. The biblical concept is an actual thousand-year reign of the returning King Jesus before he conquers his enemies and brings about an eternity in God's presence. What is church? For a lot of people, it is, I'm communing with nature. Or it's something like a book club. Or it's, I'm going to accomplish societal change instead of, I'm gathering with other people who follow Jesus to encourage, admonish, and help them, and then scatter to proclaim him and make disciples. Possible approaches. Figure out what streams of thought are most contributing to a person's beliefs. Because until you can put your finger on that, for the average person you talk to in society, they wouldn't claim a religion, but they have a lot of religious ideas. And until you understand a little bit of where they're coming from, um, it's not that you can't share the truth of the Bible with them, but there's a degree to which we are probably better stewards of the opportunity if we understand where they're coming from, so we're not throwing things that they already believe in or have no framework for understanding at them uh, right off the bat. So if somebody's... um, I'm trying to think of a good example here. If somebody's concept of God is polytheism, you're going to take approach more like Paul did in Acts 14 and 17. If somebody's framework is some sort of, uh, I used to go to a Unitarian church then you're going to take a slightly different approach that talks something along the lines of of the fact that Unitarianism has some things in common with deism. You're going to talk maybe about the fact that God is personal, right? So those are two very different discussions that you're having, but if you don't know where the person's coming from, it's going to be hard to have those, have those well. Recognize someone may happily cling to a variety of contradictory ideas. How many of you have ever believed two things that contradict each other at the same time? Let me give you an example. I can sleep in and I can be to work on time. Those things are very contradictory, but we we still want to believe they're true, right? I was reminded of this earlier this week. Don't ask me how I know. Um, My class was second hour, so it was the kids that were late, not me. But, you know, we believe things that are contradictory. We shouldn't be shocked that other people do the same thing. Show genuine concern for the person even when his view of the world is absurd or wicked or whatever. Jesus spent a lot of time with sinners, not condoning their sin, not saying it was okay, but not avoiding them as though they as people were the problem. The problem is their enslavement to sin, their following after the God of this world who is Satan. The problem is, and that problem is not solved by sort of holding them at arm's length like when you when the cat throws up and you clean it up off the floor and you don't want to touch it and you throw it. If we treat people that way, we're never going to have the sort of connection God wants us to have. Keep pointing back to Scripture despite rejection. Uh, We talked about this before. The chapter of verse idea, not everything has to be a direct quote of a Bible verse. That's not wrong, but it doesn't have to every time just be a word-for-word quote of a Bible verse. Sometimes it can be a summary, like we saw Paul do in Acts 17, of a truth about God. God is the creator, God's been kind to you, those sorts of ideas. Some questions to help you understand where they're coming from or for them to think about what they believe. Why is blank so important to you? Here's some examples of things you could put in the blank. Why are, and this is just things that I've had to have conversations with people about, why are native plants so important to you? The irony is that a lot of the people who will say things about native plants also have very strong beliefs about racism that are at direct odds with their beliefs about plants. That's a whole other subject. But my point is to say that's another of those examples. Why is this so important to you? Because if we can do blank, it will fix this problem. 
right? And that shows you something of where they're coming from. Why is self-identified sexual identity so important to you? Why do you want this to be the thing that people know about you? I would guess if we were able to have a long enough conversation with most people who are struggling with those kinds of issues, and when I say most people, there's a lot. When I'm just talking about one specific instance of it, I would argue that 60 to 80% of people in our society are struggling with things like that. Um, why is that so important to you? A lot of it comes down to wanting love and acceptance and a sense of belonging. Why is something like social justice so important to you? That will reveal a lot about where someone's coming from. Why is blank so important to you? Uh, a second question. Why do you blank when your stated belief says blank? So let's fill in some blanks. Why do you spend lots of money on animals who are broken if you believe we're all here by accident? There are people who will happily say we evolved from scum in the ocean. Slime in the ocean, scum, same difference. But we should spend $1,500 to fix a cat that somebody cut up and threw in a trash can. Why? I'm not arguing that we should, show huma we should be humane to animals. That's not my point. My point is to say, if you think that we're all evolving and the strongest should survive, why do you care about that thing that's broken? It doesn't make any sense based on the things you've said you believe. If every belief is valid, here's another question. Why does it bother you that Christianity is exclusive? Because a lot of these people really rail on Christianity, organized religion and hateful and what. If every religion is valid, why can't mine be valid? The whole discussion of tolerance, for example. Discuss the problem of self-referential truth. All right, so let me just illustrate this. If I go to Bruce and I say, Bruce... My truth is that we are living in a simulation. So I don't know if you're real or if you're a function of that simulation. By simulation, I mean like somebody is somehow persuading us that we're living in something and we're actually all stuck.